If you find a pew Bible there, you'll see that it's on page, excuse me, page 947. As we continue through this series where we're looking at the book of Ephesians. And today we come to this particular passage where, as you just heard, Paul's praying. He's praying for this church in Ephesus that, that he's longing for them to know God. But, but not just to know God, but to like, like know God in, in, a, in a deeper sense. What do I mean by that? Well, there, there's things in this world that we're all familiar with where you can know about something. You, you can know about a person, a place, or a thing. But it's an entirely different story to experience it. A couple examples for you. Uh, over my years of being a pastor, I have worked with dozens and dozens of couples who are preparing for marriage. And so they, they, they call me and, and they meet with me and they want to know, what is marriage like? What, what can we expect? What do we need to get ready for in these days ahead that we're going to live as a married couple? And so as they come meet with me and we go through different surveys, we, we talk about the results of those, we get to know them a bit, answer some questions they have. It's a bit of a program that I walk them through to, to reveal some, some strategies, some tips on how do you resolve conflict and, and how do you endure difficult times that are going to come. And, and part of my job there is sometimes couples come in and they have such an idealized understanding of what the future is going to be. It's like, you've seen that movie Up where the old man ties balloons to his house and it just kind of floats up into the sky. So I feel like I'm the guy on the ground with the BB gun who kind of has to pop, pop some balloons and bring them back down to earth a little bit about what marriage is actually going to be like. Because I have to tell them things about challenges that they're going to have. And that's not always going to be easy. And that they're not always going to get along. And they may not believe it, but the romance might just fade a little bit. Now, at the time, they look at me like I'm crazy. They think I'm insane. Because they've heard about marriage. They, they know what marriage is like. We've, we've heard about this thing before. And you know what, Pastor Mark? When you look up the word bliss in the dictionary, you're going to see a picture of us right there. That's going to be what we have. But what happens? They get married. A few months later, my phone rings. Uh, Pastor Mark, what was that thing you said about conflict and, and the challenges we were going to have? <laughs> you see, they knew about the institution of marriage, but they hadn't actually experienced it at this point. And another thing I thought of, example I thought of is a place like Disneyland, right? Like it's the happiest place on earth. It, it's a place where they say all your dreams will come true. Now, it's one thing to watch a Disney movie. It's one thing to watch the Disney parade on Christmas morning, and it's a completely different thing to actually go there and experience it, right? Like, like who's been to Disneyland? Yeah, pretty much everybody, right? Because it's a completely different experience. Our family has gone twice. The first time we went when Kalina was seven and Sam was about two. Josh wasn't around yet at that age. And so we took the kids to Disneyland, and they loved it. To this day, Kalina is, is 25 now. It's still one of her most favorite places on earth to go, to Disneyland. And Samuel, at the age of two, he enjoyed his first day so much that the second day, Nadine and I wake up and, and I kind of sit up in the bed and I look. And there's two-year-old Sam. He has got himself dressed. He's got his Mickey Mouse hat on. And he's sitting in his stroller, just ready to go. <laughs> we had not even got out of bed yet. They love the place. And so they would always talk about how awesome it was. And then when Josh came around, they'd share it with him. So we thought, well, we've got to take Josh to Disneyland. So we go back to Disneyland for a second time. Wasn't quite the same experience, though. So this, this happiest place on earth, we get there. At the end of day one, Josh is miserable. He just hates it. And as we're walking out of the park at the end of day, and he's kind of slugging and slow, he's quiet, and he doesn't say anything for a while. And then he goes, well, it didn't make all my dreams come true. So <laughs> 
So totally different experiences. But here's the thing. So Paul's praying this prayer for the church in Ephesus. And he's praying it with that pride of a father who's, who's watching his children grow who is watching them succeed in what they're doing. And he's expressing this deep joy and this deep thankfulness for what's taking place in their lives and in the church. And, and, and as, as they've continued in their faith, as they've grown in their love and knowledge of Jesus Christ for one another, they're on their way. They are flourishing. As we talked about last week, these are the people who were chosen by God, who, who were eternally known and loved by him and adopted into his family. Those who were redeemed by Jesus and they are free from the bondage of sin and they are living in that freedom. They're living lives of power and victory in Jesus Christ. These are the people who were sealed by the Holy Spirit and, and they have a promise and a taste of the future inheritance, eternity with God that is yet to come. If, if you missed that sermon, you can find it online and listen to it again. This is who he's, he's praying for and he knows that they know God. And he has great joy and pride in what's already taking place in their lives, but he knows something else. He knows that there is a deeper experience that is out for them to experience still. There is still more that they have yet to unearth and uncover about who God is. And it's with this incredible joy and pride that he prays, longing that they would know God, that they would know this deeper experience and knowledge of who he is. And so he prays this for them. He prays, may God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He prays that they would know him better. Basically, that they would grow in their knowledge and personal experience of who God is and of what he has done for them and the difference that that makes in their lives. Now, they do know God. They have a relationship with him. They've started to see the difference that God makes in a person's life. But they've just seen the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much more under the waterline yet to be discovered that he wants them to understand exists. It's like the difference between looking at a, a two-dimensional painting of a forest on the wall versus actually standing in the forest. Two completely different experiences. A two-dimensional picture of a forest on the wall, even beautifully painted by our Randy Hayashi. Beautiful picture. But it doesn't parallel actually standing in the midst of creation in that three-dimensional experience that's out there. And Paul prays that the way that this will be accomplished for them, the way they can experience this is if the eyes of their hearts are opened. If the eyes of their hearts are opened. Now, if you've been around the church for a few years, this will be a common phrase for you. Uh, most likely because you're familiar with the song written by Paul Balash that we, we sang just a few moments ago that was inspired by this verse. That song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see Jesus. It was inspired by this verse. Now, it's a curious phrase, though, because it's a metaphor, clearly a metaphor for something because our hearts don't have eyes. So what is he referring to? Well, I, I thought, you know, I want to help you understand what this means, what this means to, to, uh, to have eyes in our hearts. So, so do this with me. Just take a second, just close your eyes for a second, okay? Close your eyes, and what do you see? Nothing, right? It's dark. Now open them. There, it's like that. You thought something more profound was going to happen. No. <laughs> no, it's really quite that simple, actually. <laughs> so I got some of you. So it's really not any more profound than that. See, physically we don't have eyes in our hearts, no, but we need to open our eyes of our hearts to let the light flood in, to let the truth and reality of who God is, let, it, let our hearts see 
those things about who God is. And so Paul's asking that our hearts, that often when our eyes are closed, we'll, we'll stumble around in the darkness. He's asking us to let the eyes of our hearts open to let the light in so we can see him more clearly, so we can know him more deeply, so we can experience him more personally. And the reality that Christ makes in our lives is what he's praying that we'll know in our hearts. Not just know about him, but experience it and know it in our hearts. And so in this passage, there are three ways that he prays for the church to see and to experience the depth and the significance of Jesus Christ when the lights in their hearts go on. There's three ways that he wants us to see Jesus in three dimensions, to see him in 3D. The first one is this. He, he prays that we will see our hope in Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open that you may know the hope to which you have been called. Now, when we hear that word hope, quite often we think of it in terms of something that we, that we do not yet possess, but we anticipate. We, we hope for something. We, we want something, but we do not yet have it. We can hope for a promotion at work. We can hope for a scholarship to a college of our choice. We can hope that one day we'll find a spouse who we'll spend the rest of our lives with. We hope that one day the kids will smarten up finally, right? Sometimes, right, parents? <laughs> a few years ago, I worked at a church on the south side, and, and this was during the time when Fort McMurray was booming, and people from the east coast would come here with a hope of a better life. But they didn't understand actually what was involved. It wasn't as easy as they were told. And so they would walk into the church having lost hope because it wasn't as easy to find a job as they were told when they were back east. And they arrived here with no money, with no friends, with no family, with no place to stay. And they'd walk into the church looking for hope because they had lost hope in the midst of that situation that they found themselves in. Well, at the time that Paul's writing this passage, this letter to, to the church in Ephesus, Hope for a better future or hope for a different situation was a foreign concept to his audience that he's writing to. You see, for most of the people in that time and age, at the time of birth, your life was determined for you. Based upon things such as, as your, your parents' social status, your, your gender, your, uh, your ethnicity determined a lot of aspects about your life. They would determine things as far as where you live, the level of education that was, that was accessible to you, the careers options that you might have, and therefore the income you had. This idea of social mobility was foreign to them. No parent in that age ever looked at their kid and said, Johnny, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. It was a foreign concept to them. And so when Paul's talking to them about having hope, it's striking to them, especially in the way that he's using it. Because he's not talking about hope the way we sometimes use it, about this something that we want for the future but may or may not ever possess. He's talking here about a biblical hope, which is something that we look forward to but have certainty in. We already know for certain that it is something that we can or already do have. And what do we look forward to? Well, the hope he's talking about here, the thing we look forward to is that one day we will see Jesus face to face and we will be with him forever. And we can have certainty that that is the thing that we long for and hope for and will experience. We can have certainty in that because Jesus is the one who has already taken the steps to make that a reality. He is the one who is already victorious. And we are told that it's there and available for us. John, uh, John would write a letter later on, First John, would write a letter where he talks about some of these very same things himself. And in his letter, he put it this way. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I write these things to you who believe in Jesus Christ 
so that you may know, so that you may be certain, so that you may have confidence, so that you will have hope that you have eternal life. Notice in this verse he's saying you already have eternal life. It's a present reality. It is something yet to be fully realized and achieved in your life, but you currently already possess it. You already have eternal life. Because when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, they enter into a very real and a very present relationship with him. It's just like if you have an older brother that you're in a relationship with and he's there with you to protect you on the playground. If you're in a relationship with a father or a coach who is talented and has skills that he can invest in you and teach you and train you and guide you through, so too we presently have access to all that Jesus has to offer us. It is a reality that currently exists in our lives. And it can make all the difference. And it can give you all sorts of confidence for today. But the most amazing thing is it's just a taste of what yet is waiting for us. That's available to us today. And so in this first dimension of what it means to, to see the presence of Jesus in our life, is this one you currently live in? Do you currently live in, in the hope that comes from seeing Jesus in your life, acknowledging that he is present and with you in the here and now? You know, when you find yourself in these good moments, when you find yourself with, with reasons to celebrate, do you acknowledge God's with you and, and is, is power behind it to the point where you give him praise? Where you give him glory, where you give him thanksgiving because he is the source behind it. Likewise, when you find yourself in tough situations, when you're not sure what to do, when you're scared of what lies ahead. Well, you may feel those emotions well up in you, but even though you feel the emotions of the humanness within us, you are unshakable because Jesus is the sure foundation upon which you are firmly fixed. Because you acknowledge that he is real and present here and now. Or... Do you allow the troubles, the pains, the questions of this world to distract you, to, to take your eyes off of him? Allow the enemy to convince you. Allow him to convince you that there's no reason to have any hope. You're all on your own. Nobody cares. You might as well just give up. There's no hope. Paul's prayer for the church, which extends to us, is that we would have eyes of our hearts to open up and see that we have hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ in the here and now. And we can be assured and certain of that reality that we experience now and yet even more yet to come. Because the depth of this truth, if we, can, if we can accept this, if it can come into our hearts, not just in our minds, but, but seep its way into our hearts, it will change the way that we live. It will give you confidence in the face of trials. It will give you certainty to take that step when you're not sure if you should or not take that step in the direction you feel the Lord's leading you. And it will give you incredible joy in the Lord in the midst of victories that we experience. Amen? Amen. There's a second dimension that Paul prays for the church here. And, and a second dimension of the Jesus' presence that Paul wants us to have a knowledge of. And it's this, is that we would understand our value in Christ. Continuing in verse 18, he says, he says it this way, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit was a deposit for our inheritance. The Holy Spirit was, was the guarantee of our future inheritance, our, our future hope that we have. But this is something different. This is something different he's referring to here. And the wording can make it a little bit, a little bit awkward, but notice this. Whose glorious inheritance is it? 
the way it's worded, it's God's glorious inheritance. It's something that God is waiting for. Which leads to the next natural question. Well, what could God possibly want that he doesn't already possess? Like, like he's God after all, right? If, if he wants it, he possesses it, right? He, he's not bound by the limits of time and things like that. So if he wants it, he should just have it, right? It, it's like that age-old question, what do you get somebody who already has everything? You probably have one or two of these people in your life where they already have everything they're impossible to buy something for. Christmas rolls around, birthdays roll around, you search the internet, you wander the mall and empty-handed. No idea what to get. Because if they want it, they already get it for themselves. Or they, they have such simple tastes that it, it's hard to know what they're even going to like. Or, or maybe you have friends that are just so wealthy that you can't afford a budget that will actually meet something that they want. What could God want that he does not already have? Well, the answer is in these few verses, these few words here as well. And the answer is the saints. The answer is his holy people. You see, the rich inheritance that God is awaiting is you and me. The rich inheritance he's waiting for is you and me. Those whom he has chosen, redeemed, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about how God knew you how he loved you, about how God planned for you before the time began. Before creation, God knew you, loved you, and planned for you. At the beginning of time, before time even began. But here it speaks about his desire to be with you at, at the end of time. And when the eyes of our hearts open to realize this truth, that from beginning to end, God has loved you, desired you, that he has valued you. As this light floods into our hearts and we start to understand this is an absolutely incredible thought of how much value you have in God's eyes. Here he uses the word rich inheritance. You are his rich inheritance. You are invaluable in his eyes. And this begins to give us a bit of a peek below the waterline of God's love where we can see just how deep that iceberg really goes. Again, in John's letter, he says this way in chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should have, that we could be called children of God. He calls us children. When you think about all the different relationships that we could have, the different words that could be used to compare our relationship to God, the one that shows the most meaning and care and intimacy and value is children. We're not just acquaintances or associates of God. We're not just friends of God. We're not just business partners. We're, we are family. We are children of God. You see, your heavenly Father loves you with this deep, intense, eternal love. And he is just waiting for that day. He is just waiting for that day when we step into eternity and we can all be together in that time together. But that day has not yet come. And so he waits. He waits and he anticipates. He anticipates receiving you into his glory. Is this a dimension of how you see the presence of Jesus in your life today? Like, do you feel his love for you? Do you understand this fact that, that he knows you? That, that he made you? That he called you to be children of God? And when you look at all those things together, we can say confidently that he values you. That you have high value in his eyes. 
You know, I, I hope at some point in our lives we've all had somebody who, who, who was like a, like, like a, a mother or a father or, or a coach or a teacher or a mentor, somebody, somebody who made it clear to you that they loved you. Somebody who spoke into your life at a time that, that said, hey, I value you. Somebody who maybe even looked you in the eyes and said, you know what, I'm proud of you. As you think of that person and the impact that experience had upon you, how did it make you feel? I'm going to guess as that person looked at you and said, I'm proud of you. I love you. I value you. As, as they said those words to you, a big smile came to your face. And you knew in that second that you were special. That, that there is good in you and about you and for you. And also, I got to believe that you had this thought in your head that said, whatever I did, whatever it is about me that led to that thought, I want to go do it again. Because I loved feeling that way. I hope this thought doesn't fall flat with you. I hope it warms your heart. I, I hope that you understand how amazing this is. That the God of all that was and is and ever will be knows you and loves you and values you. And what is our response? What is the appropriate response for us to have towards this? Well, quite simply to start with thanksgiving. To have hearts of thankfulness. But also then to, to long to serve him. To honor him. And to know that there's a world out there who doesn't feel that value who doesn't have an earthly father, yet alone a heavenly father that they know yet that loves them, that we may be able to help lead them towards their heavenly father who loves and values them as well. That's our appropriate response. Because, you know, as awesome as this, this hope and this value is that we have in Christ, there's still a third dimension that Paul talks about in his prayer to the Ephesians here. And in this third dimension, this third way in which we can experience Christ's presence in our lives is absolutely even more incredible than the hope and the value that we already have. And the third dimension is this, that we would understand our power in Christ, which he refers to here in, in, in this letter as, as his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, the word power can be used different ways in, in our world and in our culture. We can talk about, uh, about having power in your house, meaning you, you have electricity in your home. We can talk about a, a power lifter who, who can lift great weights. He picks things up and puts them down, right? We, we can talk about uh, politicians who have political power. They have, meaning they have authority over other people. And all of these are ways in which a person or, or a thing can direct an effect over another. Now follow this with me for a second. I'll circle back here and explain it in a second. All of these are ways in which a person can direct an effect, an outcome. And the level or the scope of that effect reveals the magnitude of, of how much power that person actually yields. I'll give you some examples so you see what I mean. If you take a couple of AAA batteries in your hand, you can plug those into a small radio and power a radio, but it's not, it doesn't have enough magnitude or scope to, to run your dryer at home, right? We can see, we can see a power lift. He can lift 100 pounds, but he can't necessarily lift a Volkswagen. There's limitations that go to it. In politics, we see this. In the various levels of government, there are certain scope and levels of power that exist at a municipal level, a provincial level, and a federal level. There's different levels of power. And so power has the ability to affect outcome on other things, but the scope and the magnitude of the outcome reveals the level of power that person exists, that, that person yields. 
And so when we look at the power being discussed here, the scope and the magnitude of God's power in this verse is being measured by one thing in particular. It's being measured by Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. That is the measurement. That is the scope, the magnitude, the impact of the power of God. And I think we would all agree with Paul when he says it is an incomparably great power that exists. And yet he doesn't stop there. He continues in the next couple of verses to start piling on, going, if that wasn't enough for you, if it wasn't enough that that power could raise Jesus from the dead, then he continues in the next few verses to go, you know what else it did? It seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. It placed him above all rulers. It placed him above all authorities and powers now and forevermore. It placed everything under his feet. And it made him head of all things. That is what the power did. Looking at the evidence, we think we can agree that there is no power on heaven, on earth, or under earth, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, that rivals the power that exists in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But here's Paul's point. The point he's trying to get to in this, the thing he's trying to draw our attention to is that very same power exists in and through everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. That power is available in a reality that exists within us. So it really boils down to this question. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that power exists within you? That you have access to the power of God in your life in the here and now? Or do we need to open the eyes of our hearts to this truth? That we need to see this greater dimension of Jesus' presence in our lives. When you consider the challenges that we're all going to face in life, when you consider the victories that we will also have in life, whose power are you relying upon in each of those situations? Are you relying upon your own power? Or are you relying upon the power of Christ? Quite often when we measure the outcomes, the amount of impact and effect we have afterwards, we know whose power we are relying on. So when you are worried, when, when you're fearful about events, whether that be in your home or, or things happening in your office, if there's things going on in your school or, or maybe things, challenges within your marriage or other relationships, when you look at things that are happening in society, do you understand that the same power that brought life from death is available to us? That same power of God can bring healing. It can repair relationships. It can bring life where there seems like there is no more life. Now, does that mean that we will never struggle? Absolutely not. Does it mean we'll never fail? Nope. We will. It does mean this, though. It means that we always have victory available in every situation. Paul says this in a letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. He would put it this way. He says, we will be hard-pressed on every side, but we will not be crushed. We will be perplexed, but we will not be in despair. We may be persecuted, but we will never be abandoned. We might get struck down, but we can never be destroyed. Think of it this way. Each day is made up of many little battles. Each day is made up of many little battles where you have the opportunity to either, either be victorious or be defeated in areas of purity, in areas of truth, in opportunities to share and be examples of the Christ that lives within you. Each day is made up of opportunities, many little battles to do those sorts of things and many others. And in those individual moments, we will either choose to exercise the power of God that is available to us or we will choose to exercise our own. 
And let's be honest, we're not going to win all the battles because we're not always going to choose the right way. We're not going to win all the battles. There will be times when we will feel crushed. There will be times we feel perplexed. There will be times that we feel like we have been struck down. But never forget this, is that a war is made up of lots of individual battles. But the outcome of a war is not based upon an individual skirmish. Because while we may lose some personal battles in our lives, Jesus has already won the war. And our ultimate victory is secure. Our ultimately hope is already there for us. And there is no doubt about that fact. And so at the end of the day, we battle a desperate, defeated foe. Because Jesus Christ reigns victorious and Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Therefore, the power of Jesus Christ that exists within each and every single one of us does not mean that we have to pay any attention to the voice that says we should feel despair. That we should feel like we are abandoned. That we feel like we could possibly even be destroyed. Because of the risen, exalted, and glorified Jesus Christ who is for us, who can possibly stand against us? Amen? Amen. Third dimension, the power of Christ that exists within you. You know, the final word in this prayer that Paul has for the church, he tells them that all of these things, all of these things are for the benefit of the church. You may have missed that if you read this in the past. In chapter 1, 22 through 23, that it's all for the benefit of the church. That God appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body. Now this will become a a focus that we're going to be in for the next few weeks. This is the first time Paul uses the word church in in this letter. And he's introducing this concept as Christ is head over the church and we as the body are the church. And he's going to expand upon this for the next coming weeks. This is where he's going in his letter. As he's set the table now to start talking about the church. And there is no other letter that focuses upon theology of the church like the book of Ephesians. There is no other letter that holds the church in such high regard. And here it says as a means of introduction that Jesus Christ is the head. What that means is that he is Lord. Is that just as Jesus has power and authority over all things, he has power and authority over the church too. And then he uses this metaphor of the body which will come up a number of times in the weeks ahead. Where he says that that we are the body. All those who are redeemed by God. All those who were, who were redeemed by him are brought into unity in the body. And in this he stresses that, that there's this connection between the body and the head. There's connection to, between the church and Jesus Christ. That, that the head, Jesus, gives life. It directs the direction and the hope and the future of the body. And all of us who have chosen to have that personal relationship with him, who, who can have our eyes of our hearts opened up, have the ability now because of our relationship with him, to see him in 3D. Which means, amongst other things, we have this, this deeper knowledge and experience, understanding of who he is, that we can see that he is the hope that we have. We have our hope in Christ. We can have assurance that now and forever he's with us, individually and within the church. That we can see our value in Christ, that, that individually and within the church, that he knows us, he loves us, and he treasures us. And that we have power in Christ. So we have power in our own lives. But we have power as the church. As well as the assembled body of of Christ coming together has the power of Christ within it as well. And that we can bring life to every situation. Because we are victorious. Because he is victorious. That's where Paul's going with this letter. 
as he talks about the church, the high theology of the church. But here's the thing we want to close with today. We can also see all three of these things, the hope, the value, and the power of Jesus Christ. We can see all of those things in the sacrifice he made upon the cross as well, which also was for our benefit. Now, if you think of the hope, the value, and the power of Christ that's available to each of us, it, 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 draw, it does come to mind as we approach the communion table that those are all present as well. Where at the communion table, we, we focus upon Jesus' sacrifice. The fact that Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life. That God's son, God in flesh, came to give his life in our place to pay the price for the fact that we didn't live a sinless life. And that was ultimately the greatest demonstration of love, the greatest demonstration of saying, I value enough to give my life for you. And because he didn't stay dead, but was raised on the third day, there's power. There's power that comes from our relationship with him. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. If you, don't, if you don't know him in that personal way today, maybe you've heard this before. You've heard that Jesus loves you and, and gave his life for you. But if you haven't taken that step to, to understand, to have the eyes of your heart opened, to step in and understand what does it mean to actually live in the certainty of a future hope? What, what does it mean to understand that my heavenly father values me? What does it mean that I can have power as I walk into the into the world, into the situations around me. It's not power like a Marvel superhero movie type of thing. It's, but it's this power that we can have this confidence, this hope that, that God is working for us and through us in all things. And that when outcomes seem certain and, and the world seems to be pressing in and crushing in and perplexing and, and, and coming against us, that, that God is with us and fighting for us. And that ultimately we have victory in him. If that is not something that you personally experienced, then I invite you to consider stepping across that line, saying, Jesus, thank you for dying upon the cross for me. Thank you for giving your life to pay the price for my sins that separates me from God so that I can know you personally, so that I, can have, I can know you deeper. I can experience you, your hope, your value, and your power in my life. That's what was bought. That's what was made possible at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can know those things. And the symbols on the table here are, are the symbols that, that remind us that Jesus' body was hung upon that cross. That we have bread, symbolic upon his body that was given, that was beaten, that was placed upon that cross. And the cup symbolic of his blood that flowed from that body down the cross, across the ground and throughout history to cleanse us from our sins, to pay the price that was beyond us to even put a dent in. That's what we remember here today. And so as we come around this table, in a moment I'm going to give you a chance to, to reflect and, and to respond. Maybe there's something you need to respond with in your life where, where you haven't made that profession of faith, that this isn't a reality in your life yet, and you can make that decision today just in your heart by a simple prayer to Christ, and you can seal that and, and confirm it by participating in communion with us today. Or maybe there's an opportunity in this time of reflection just to look back and, and see those parts where, where maybe you have been relying more on your own power than the power of Christ 
You need to confess those things. This is an opportunity to, to, to once a month, we gather together as a church family, and we have an opportunity to, to do some work with God if we've been putting it off longer than we should have. This is maybe a reset point for you today. It's also an opportunity just to extend thanksgiving, to thank Jesus for his sacrifice. So I give you an opportunity to, to reflect now and, and ponder those things in your heart, that the eyes of your heart would be open to, to if there's any work that you need to do with Christ. All who have accepted Christ are welcome to, to participate in these elements as they're distributed in a moment. And so we give you a moment to, uh, to reflect upon that as I invite the servers to go forward.